We open the Bible to Psalm 110. We'll read the psalm together, and then in addition to this psalm, which I put in the bulletin, we'll flip to Matthew 22 and read a short passage there where Jesus refers to this psalm and applies it to himself. So we'll read Psalm 110 and then turn to Matthew 22 and read verses 35 through 46. Let us hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Now we turn to Matthew 22. Read the very last portion of the chapter, starting at verse 35. The context here is Jesus is in a conversation with the Sadducees and with the Pharisees who are trying to snare him in his words. And as usual, Jesus turns the tables on them. So beginning at Matthew 22, verse 35. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. The basis of these passages of scripture, we consider the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 19. This morning looking at question 50 and question 51, page 11 in the Psalter. Question 50 asks, Why is it added, and sitteth at the right hand of God? 
Because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, that he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. What profit is this glory of Christ our head unto us? First, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon his members. And then, that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus, 40 days after his resurrection, ascended into heaven. And in the body he left earth, but that is not the last that we hear of Jesus. In fact, as the scriptures reveal, there is much, much more. Because as Lord's Day 18 taught us last week, Jesus ascended into heaven not to forget about us, but he ascended into heaven that there he may continue in our interest. That is, that he may continue in his mediatorial work on behalf of the church which he has redeemed by the shedding of his blood. And thus the Apostles' Creed in one breath says, He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God. In Christian theology, the term for this is the session of Jesus Christ. And that's based simply on a Latin word. Session comes from a Latin word simply meaning sitting or sitting down. Jesus ascended to this end that he might sit at the right hand of the Father. And this is important. This is a big part of Jesus continuing working in heaven for our interest. The Apostles' Creed has been leading us through Jesus' state of humiliation, his lowliness in which he took upon himself our guilt and paid for our sins. We've started Jesus' state of exaltation, his state of glory, having completed the work that the Father gave him to do. In the state of humiliation, one of the stages often gets... Insufficient attention, and that's Jesus' burial. But likewise, in in the state of exaltation, sometimes Jesus' session at God's right hand gets overshadowed by his resurrection, his ascension, and the last stage, his coming again. But we must see that Jesus sitting at God's right hand is just as important as all of the rest. It's part of his saving work. And it's a comforting truth because right now, that's where Jesus is in the flesh. Right now, he is at God's right hand, and that's good news for you and me. Because at the very right hand of God, he is pouring out his grace upon his church. He is exercising his almighty power in the defense and in the preservation of the sheep of his hand. And so let us enter into this truth explained in the article of the Apostles' Creed and sitteth at the right hand of God as expounded in Lord's Day 19 of the Catechism. Our theme is seated at God's right hand. We're first going to look at the meaning of this biblical expression. Secondly, the purpose as outlined in our Catechism. And then finally, the profit of Jesus' session for us. Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Simply put, it means this. Jesus Christ, in his human nature, 
was vested by God the Father with the heavenly position of supreme power and glory. And now right at the onset, let us remember that in Jesus' state of exaltation, His resurrection, His ascension, His session, and His second coming, we are speaking especially about Jesus Christ according to His human nature. Jesus is one person. He is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And as the Son of God, He has has fully the divine nature. He is fully God. But He has assumed our human nature such that He is fully man. When Jesus is glorified, He is not glorified according to His divine nature because the divine nature is already supremely glorified. You can't add anything to His divine nature. But when we speak of Jesus being seated at God's right hand and being glorified as the victorious mediator of the covenant, we are speaking of Jesus Christ according to His human nature, the man Jesus Christ. The man Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and the man Jesus Christ was seated at God's right hand. Now what does that mean? First place, we must understand that Jesus being seated at God's right hand is a figurative expression in the Bible. That is, we aren't to interpret this strictly literally. It's not that there is a physical chair somewhere in heaven and that Jesus now for the entirety of the New Testament age is sitting in that chair. Nor is it the case that Jesus is from a physical point of view at God's physical right hand because God doesn't have a physical hand. Yes, God has a hand. He has the hand. The hand after which our hands are patterned. But God is not a material being. He is spirit, as John 4 verse 24 teaches. And thus God's hand refers to His almighty and everywhere present power by which He upholds and governs all things. The power by which God accomplishes His will. God created us to have a physical hand, and our physical hand reflects God's hand, in that our hand is the part of us that we use to accomplish a task. It is the means by which we exert the power God has given us to do something. So, we mustn't think about Jesus' session at God's right hand in strictly physical terms. It is a figurative expression revealing and describing a very real spiritual reality. Jesus sitting at God's right hand is not a posture, but a position. And the reason it is described with this posture of sitting at the right hand is the Bible is drawing a picture that's taken from our world of experience. The Bible often does this because we are earthly creatures. We need earthly pictures to help us understand heavenly realities. And that's what the Bible does here. When it speaks of Jesus sitting at God's right hand, it is describing to us the position of the ascended Lord using the picture of an earthly posture. And so now let's, let's look at that figure a little bit. And then we can understand what Jesus' position in heaven is. The posture of sitting down at the right hand is a figure that pictures a most honorable and exalted position. If you look at Genesis 41, we see this idea of what it is to be 
at someone's right hand. Genesis 41 records the history of Joseph after he's been taken out of prison and after God has given Joseph the power to interpret Pharaoh's dream. You remember, Pharaoh takes Joseph and doesn't send him back into prison, but makes Joseph his servant in his court. But not just any servant. He doesn't send Joseph to the royal kitchens to replace the baker that Pharaoh had recently executed, but he elevates Joseph to the highest position of authority in the kingdom of Egypt. And while Genesis 41 doesn't use the expression at Pharaoh's right hand, the idea is very present and communicated here. So let's look at a few verses in Genesis 41. Starting at at verse 40. Pharaoh says this to Joseph, Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne shall I be greater than thou. Joseph was made Pharaoh's right-hand man, his second in command. And Pharaoh vested Joseph with supreme authority and power in the kingdom of Egypt. Verse 41 And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried before him, Bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh And without thee shall no man lift up his hand or his foot in all the land of Egypt. That's the position of being at the right hand of a mighty king. And that's the picture now to transfer from this world to heaven. And this picture explains for us and highlights for us what it means that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. God has put Jesus, the man Jesus Christ, in the supreme position in heaven. Much like Pharaoh put Joseph in the supreme position over all of Egypt. And so there are really now three dimensions or three aspects to That supreme position that Jesus now occupies in heaven. Let's walk through those a moment. That Jesus is seated at God's right hand in the first place means he occupies the position of God's favor. Pharaoh favored Joseph. And King Pharaoh delighted to show that he favored Joseph by elevating Joseph to this position as his right-hand man. That demonstrated favor. Another biblical example of this can be found in 2 Kings 2.19. In 2 Kings 2.19, we read about how Bathsheba seeks an audience with her newly crowned son, Solomon. And this is what we read. That Solomon sat down on his throne and caused a seat to be set for the king's mother and she sat on his right hand. Solomon did that as a a demonstration and expression of his favor for her, the queen mother. When Jesus began his public ministry with his baptism at the Jordan River, you remember what God said from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
Now Jesus has accomplished all of the work that the Father gave Him to do. And now the Father publicly shows that supreme favor upon His well-beloved Son by taking Him up to heaven and now conferring upon Him that supreme position of glory. He is the favored one. And now, there's a quick application for us. If Jesus is the favored one, and believers are the people who belong to Jesus, redeemed by His blood, connected to Him by a living faith, what does that mean for us? We are connected to the one who sits at the right hand of God, the favored one, the favored head, We are His favored body. The favor of God runs from the head Jesus Christ down to all of His members. God views you, beloved, in light of your head. Jesus, the favored one. So that in the first place, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God means He has the supreme position of God's favor. Now in the second place, that Jesus is seated at God's right hand means He occupies the position of supreme honor. He is the one... To whom all glory and praise is due. He is worthy of that honor. When Pharaoh elevated Joseph to that position, Pharaoh not only delighted to show his favor in Joseph, but Pharaoh honored Joseph. A king, when he delighted to honor a servant of his, would raise him to a high position. And if especially he delighted to honor that man, trusted that man, he would elevate that man to the position of his right hand. It was a public declaration that this man ought to be honored by all. And you see that in how Pharaoh dealt with Joseph. Joseph was given the second chariot. And wherever Joseph rode through the land of Egypt, there was a herald that went before him that cried out, Bend the knee, bow before this man whom the king delights to honor. Jesus is the man God delights to honor. That's why question and answer 51 calls Jesus sitting at God's right hand this glory of Christ our head. Jesus being seated at God's right hand is the public and full revelation that this is the man whom God delights to honor. He is the firstborn of every creature, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, as Colossians 1.18 says. Jesus is exalted in honor and glory above all others. He is exalted above David, his human ancestor. He is exalted even above the angels of God. Hebrews 1 verse 13 makes that point in the, by way of a rhetorical question. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Hebrews 1 verse 13 quotes Psalm 110 verse 1, applies it to Jesus and says, to which of God's angels was this ever said? He holds the position of supreme honor and glory. Philippians 2, 9 and 10, how familiar are these words to us. God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he 
is Lord. Supreme honor. Preeminence. And Jesus is worthy of it. For he fulfilled all the work the Father gave him to do. Now third and finally. The idea of Jesus being seated at God's right hand. It's a position of favor. A position of supreme honor. And now in the third place. It's a position of absolute authority and power. When a king sat his favored man at his right hand, he put that man in a seat right next to his throne as the king held the scepter in his right hand. And what that indicated is that the king rules through this man at his right hand. You see that with Pharaoh and Joseph. Pharaoh put Joseph over the entire land of Egypt, so much so that Pharaoh says, without you, without your will and direction, no one will lift a hand or lift a foot. Absolute authority Over a kingdom. Jesus. In our flesh. Is given that authority and power. By God the Father. He said shortly before he ascended. In Matthew 28 verse 18. All power is given unto me. In heaven and in earth. And Ephesians 1. Verses 20 and 22. Expand that idea. Marvelously and in beautiful fullness. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named. Not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet. And gave him to be head over all things to the church. Jesus At God's right hand has all authority. Meaning he has the right to rule all things. He is king of kings and he is lord of lords. He not only has all authority, the right to rule, but he has all power. The ability to execute his will. To accomplish his will. To enforce his will. And even to compel his enemies and his adversaries to serve his will. All power in heaven and earth. You think about what that means. Jesus will, shall be done. He has power over the brute creation. He has power over men. He holds the hearts of even the mightiest earthly kings and politicians and wealthy men in his hand and turns them whithersoever he wills. Jesus at God's right hand holds the very scepter of God and wields the very power of God. And what a comfort that is because the one at God's right hand is the one who is your Savior. Who continues now at God's right hand in your interest such that the scepter of the Almighty God Moves in your interest and for your benefit. All authority and power is given to Jesus. Well now to finish up the first point which is expounding the meaning of Jesus' session at God's right hand. Let's connect this truth that has been explained back to the psalm that we read. Psalm 110. 
This psalm was read in connection with this Lord's Day because Psalm 110 is an outstanding prophecy of Jesus being seated at God's right hand. Indeed, it is a very unique prophecy. There are many prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament and in the Psalms. But here, in Psalm 110 verse 1, you have the inspired words of David. But really, they're not David's words. They're God's words spoken to His Son, the Christ. As Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 43, David penned these words and spoke these words in the Spirit. These words were given him by the Holy Spirit as a prophecy of the coming Christ. There is an echo of God's eternal counsel that reverberates through this psalm. Words of the Father to the Son who shall be sent into the world to take upon himself our flesh and in our flesh conquer sin and death and be elevated to the highest glory as the Savior Priest King of God's people. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. The Lord, that's God, said unto my Lord. Who is this my Lord of whom David speaks? And clearly, it's the Messiah, God's anointed one. The anointed one, the coming Savior, was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 verse 13. There God revealed that this coming Messiah would be born in David's own royal line. He would be the son of David according to the flesh. But now, in verse 1 of this psalm, we are taught that God's anointed will one day be seated on a throne far greater than David's throne in Jerusalem. A throne far greater than all principalities and powers and earthly dominions would be seated at the very right hand of God. What a prophecy. Fulfilled. When Jesus ascended, and when God the Father conferred upon the ascended Christ this position of supreme favor, honor, power, and authority in the interest of the redeemed church. In Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46, we have a very interesting New Testament interaction with this messianic psalm. Jesus Christ himself quotes part of it, particularly verse 1, and applies it to himself. As already mentioned in the introduction, in Matthew 22 there, Jesus is being interrogated by the Pharisees who are looking to catch him in his words. And Jesus turns the tables and he stumps them by asking them the question, whose son will the Christ be? All the Jews in that day believed that there was a coming Messiah and that that coming Messiah would be a descendant of King David. But Jesus' enemies did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. Nor were they expecting the kind of Savior that the Word of God proclaimed would come. They were seeking an earthly king. Someone to sit on David's throne and send the Romans packing and create a glorious earthly kingdom. And so Jesus turns the tables on them here 
And as the Lord of the Scriptures, he draws out of Psalm 110 a truth that the Jews of his day most, mostly did not believe or did not know of. The truth that the coming son of David, the coming king, would be a divine king. That's what Jesus is getting at now in Matthew 22, verses 43 through 45. Let's follow our Lord's logic a moment. Jesus says to them, How then doth David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? So Jesus had asked the Pharisees, whose son will the coming Christ be? And the Pharisees responded with the typical Jewish answer of that day, he'll be the descendant of David. And they meant, that's all he'll be. He'll be a great earthly king who will give us that earthly kingdom we want. And Jesus goes to Psalm 110 verse 1 and he says, wait a moment. If the Christ is only David's son and nothing more, Why does David say in Psalm 110, The Lord said unto my Lord. In Jewish thinking, the Father is far greater than the Son. The Jews esteemed themselves to be the sons of great father Abraham. How can it be that the great King David, the greatest king of Old Testament Israel, would speak of that coming descendant of of his as his Lord? Using even a title typically reserved or given to God. You see what Jesus is saying here. The very ancient scriptures and prophecy that you Pharisees know very well. Teaches that the son of David will be more than the son of David. Yes, he will be the son of David according to the flesh. But he will be David's Lord according to his divinity. A savior king who is both God and man. Masterfully, Jesus Christ puts his adversaries to silence and reveals himself as that Messiah king, the son of David and God himself. So that's the meaning. The meaning of Jesus' session at God's right hand. But our Heidelberg Catechism, as we well know, is a practical confession. The Catechism is not merely interested in expounding unto us the doctrinal truth of the Bible, but is interested in applying it and making sure we understand its practical significance for us. The Christian faith Though it has a powerful intellectual element, is not merely an intellectual faith, but is a heart faith. And a faith that ought to dominate the life. And thus, really the preoccupation of question 50, you'll notice, is not on the meaning of Jesus' session at God's right hand. But the catechism quickly races to get to the purpose and then to the profit of Christ's session. Why is it added and sitteth at the right hand of God? Why? Purpose. What's the purpose for Jesus receiving this position at God's right hand? And of course, the ultimate purpose is the supreme glory of God. That is God's ultimate purpose in all things. His own glory. 
But the catechism being the personal confession that it is, focuses on the purposes of Jesus' session at God's right hand for us. Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, for this goal, for this purpose. That he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. Twofold purpose. Let's walk through it briefly. First, Jesus is seated at God's right hand for the purpose of appearing in heaven as the head of his church. Start with that idea. Jesus is the head of his church. Head. He's the ruler. He's the principal one. He is the one who has preeminence. He is the only head of the church. There's no other head. And every other religious claim made by any man to be the head of the church, it is a lie and a claim which ought to be rejected. There is one head of the church, Jesus Christ. And the head of the church has a people. As Psalm 110 verse 3 says, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. He has a people that he has gathered to himself to be his members, the members of his body. And the people of Jesus Christ are the spiritual Israel. That is, God's chosen people, his elect, according to grace. Believers, the citizens of the kingdom. As Colossians 1.18 says, Jesus is the head of the body. The church. There's a few ideas contained. In the fact that Jesus is our head. The head of his church. It means in the first place that he's our king and our representative. An earthly king or an earthly president is called the head of state. What that means is he rules the citizenry of the state over which he is king. And that king or that president makes laws, makes decisions for his people. He is qualified and he is authorized to act on their behalf. And the actions of that head of state have legal consequences for the people over which he rules. And so it is with Jesus and us. He is our head. He is our representative. He is the one who rules us. And as our legal head, he represents us before God's law. And that's an essential part of Jesus' saving work. Because he is our head who represents us, he is able to assume to himself our sins and pay for them through the one sacrifice of himself upon the cross. He is able to obey the law perfectly on our behalf and his actions have legal consequences for us. What our head does is credited to us. So on the basis of our head And what he has done, God grants us the remission of our sins. God imputes to us the perfect righteousness of our head. What the head does benefits the body who he represents. Another idea contained in this is that as head, Jesus is the source of life and the one who unifies his people. As the head... True life flows from him to the body. Any member that is severed from its head will quickly die. So it is spiritually Christ in us. 
Perhaps you think of John 15 and the figure of the vine and the branches. We by nature are but those dead sticks on the ground. But when we are engrafted into the true vine, Jesus Christ, our head, and we become His members, united to Him by the Spirit, connected to Him by faith, the life of the true vine flows into us. So it is the life of our living, risen, ascended, and seated head in heaven. From Him comes all true life. He is the one who unifies the body. The human body is made up of many different members with different functions. So to the church. So to the flock of Jesus Christ. But what makes us one. What unites us. What directs us to a common goal and a common purpose. What gives us a common life. Is the fact that we are all united to the same head. The Lord Jesus Christ who rules us in common. And directs us according to his will. And in common, we delight in that. We are the people, as verse 3 says, who are willing in the day of His power. Jesus is the head. Wonderful, beautiful reality. But now the catechism focuses on this. Jesus ascended into heaven and was seated at God's right hand so that He may appear there as the head of His church. That means Jesus doesn't go to heaven Just to put on appearances. But to be publicly manifest in heaven. As the victorious head and savior of the church. And thus be the guarantee of the full salvation of the entire body that he has redeemed with his blood. He, the head, appears in heaven. And what does that mean for the rest of the body? Presently we will follow and appear there too. Our head Seated at God's right hand. Presently, when His good work in us is finished, we shall be seated at His right hand. Where the head goes, the body must follow. Let your mind go back to those words in Ephesians 1.22, which we read earlier. God has put all things under Christ's feet. And then the verse says, And gave him to be head over all things to the church. That is to the advantage and to the salvation of the church. He appears in heaven for our salvation. That from heaven, he might finish his work and bring his members to be with him there. And he is head over all things to the church. And he exercises that universal, omnipotent headship to ensure each and every one of his blood-bought members are brought to be with him at God's appointed time. And that then segues nicely into the second purpose that the catechism points out. If Jesus Christ is head over all things to the church, then as the catechism says, it is by Him, through Christ, that the Father governs all things. Just as Pharaoh ruled all of Egypt through Joseph at his right hand, so God has elevated the risen and ascended Christ to the position of His right hand, that through Christ... The entire administration of God's kingdom may be carried out. Jesus sits on the throne of the universe and holds the very scepter of God. 
And that power is used in pursuit of the realization of God's eternal counsel. Christ rules over all. Thus the prophet for us. Thus the prophet. That's question and answer 51. What prophet is this glory of Christ our head unto us? Follow the language of that question. It's important. Jesus' ascension in his session at God's right hand is glory for him. But he's our head. Which means his glory is good for us. Whatever glorifies Christ, whatever honors Christ is going to be good for us, his members. And the catechism again specifies two things. For our comfort, here and now. Just as Jesus' ascension, his going away from an earthly perspective was not loss for us, but was for our advantage, so too Jesus' session at God's right hand. First, that by His Holy Spirit, He pours out heavenly graces upon His members. To use an earthly picture, Jesus is seated at God's right hand and there He opens up the fountain. The fountain that rains blessings down upon the church militant yet on earth. Like a refreshing rain pours them out so that we are never without them. In every circumstance, in every moment of the earthly battle of the Christian life, even when it's the hardest, even when the fighting is the fiercest against the devil, against our own sinful flesh, against the principalities and the powers of darkness in this world, there is always that unending stream of heavenly empowering graces sufficient for our need. Those graces just Describe all of the blessings of salvation. And those graces describe all of the spiritual gifts that the Spirit imparts to us His people. That Jesus is seated at the right hand of God means nothing in this world lifts a hand or lifts a foot without Him. And we who are His people United to Him by the Spirit and by the living bond of faith. We will never go without the grace that we need. It flows to us as a continual stream from God's right hand. Applied to us by the Spirit of the living Christ. Who dwells in the head and dwells in the members. Trust your head. Trust your King. In all things and for all things. Secondly, the catechism says, the prophet of Jesus' session at God's right hand is that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. Remember when Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee into the land of the Gadarenes? There were a few men who lived in the tombs there and terrorized the local villages. And those two men who screamed and howled in the tombs and cut themselves with rocks came out to meet Jesus. Because that man was possessed by a legion of devils. And at the word, 
of Jesus, the legion was cast out. That's the defending, preserving, conquering power of Christ displayed even in his lowly state of humiliation. How much more can we trust the power of the exalted Christ sitting at God's right hand to whom all authority and power is given who exercises that power now in the defense and the preservation of his church. Legions of devils are nothing to him. Don't fear earthly kings, political movements, wars, rumors of war, even the ferocious lion, the devil. Nothing can topple the government of Christ. He is above all principalities and powers. And what Jesus said to Pilate is true of every other power. You have no power except it be given thee from heaven. Jesus preserves his church. We are under the umbrella of his perfect protection. No weapon formed against you can ever prosper. Even when it touches you, it cannot kill you. Every single plot of Satan ultimately unravels because Christ reigns. Even Antichrist himself cannot make even a hair fall from your head apart from the will of him who sits upon the throne. Fear not. The dark last days. Because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And the roaring lion is on Jesus' leash. And can do nothing apart from him. Thus if we look at Romans 8. We can make the same confession that the Apostle Paul does. A confession that seems almost contradictory. And yet in that seeming contradiction is the great beauty And comfort for us. The end of Romans 8 verses 36 and 37. Notice the contrast. The Apostle Paul speaks of what has often been. And again will be the experience. Of God's people in the world. For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But those who are the sheep of Jesus Christ, the ascended and seated king, in the face of even the fiercest persecution and what seems like slaughter, make this confession, nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Because Jesus reigns and Jesus is on the throne and nothing can push him off. Nothing can undo his work, his purposes. Back to Psalm 110. God has declared, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's what's coming. That's the direction of history. No matter how dark things get, no matter how seemingly ascendant evil is, that's the direction of history. Christ's enemies shall be made his footstool, utterly defeated, subject unto them, unto him. He will put his feet upon their necks. That's our enemies too. That's sin. That's the devil. 
That's death. The footstool of Christ. And that explains the vivid images at the end of the psalm. Verse 6. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. It's a graphic image. It's an image of a victorious king on the battlefield surrounded by his fallen foes. That's Christ. Who fills the places with defeated fallen foes. The dead bodies are Satan. Death. Sin. Every enemy of God's kingdom. Your foes. Fear not, beloved. But look ever unto the one seated at God's right hand. Your King. Your Savior. Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, comfort us with this truth that Jesus rules. That the Christ is seated at thy right hand. And that for the entirety of what remains of history to come, all things must serve Him. And even in those times of fiercest persecution, when it seems thy church are as sheep for the slaughter, may we say with Paul, nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through Christ our Lord. Hasten the day when He shall return again and fully establish His kingdom. When all of his enemies shall be his footstool. And glory evermore. We shall share with him. For his sake and in his name we pray. Amen.